You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Ariane Lang, an entertainment writer and a journalist. And I'm pleased to be in conversation with Raphael Bob Waxberg. He is the creator of the animated comedy series Bojack Horseman and author of the book Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. In it, he shares a collection of short stories about the best and worst parts of love. If you'd like to ask him a question, please ask it in the chat, and or if you're watching on YouTube, or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. Thank you for joining us today, Raphael. Thank you. What a what a treat. Here we here we are. What a, what a joy to to be here in in Northern California together. <laughs> um, yes, indeed. So the first question I wanted to ask is. I saw that you are blurbed on the book by both of your grandmothers. And I was wondering if those are real quotes. From- <laughs> yes. You think, you think I made up my grandmothers for, to sell books? How, how, how cynical do you think I am? Yeah, no, these are my, 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 my only two grandmothers, uh, Shirley Bob and, and Florence Waxberg. They were two of the, the first people who, who read this book. Um, and in their own unbiased opinions, they loved it. Um, and and I, they were, uh, you know, I was nervous uh, that we weren't going to get any blurbs. So I, I asked the publisher, uh, do you think I should ask my grandmothers? They, maybe they would do it. Uh, he's like, sure, I guess you could ask them. Um, so they wrote me some lovely blurbs. And then luckily, other people also read the book and also liked it. Um, but if you are watching or listening to this, and you were wondering what book would Florence Waxberg and or Shirley Bob recommend? I, I can say with 100% certainty they would recommend Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory by their grandson, Raphael Bob Waxberg. How much material did they give you to work with? Uh, you mean over the course of my life? No, no, the blurb. Oh, the blurb. They gave me blurbs. They gave me full blurbs. Yeah, they yeah, well, I mean they said other things too over the phone, but the blurb was it's a specific thing. You know, I didn't I didn't excerpt it from a, a longer conversation. I said I want you to send me a a blurb length uh, appraisal of of my book, please. And then and then um we did we did abridge them slightly for the the paperback edition just to, so we could squeeze in a little more. But if you get the the hardcover book, you can get the full blurbs. <laughs> um Another blurb that I noticed is that Kelly Link said to give this to people as a spiteful gift. And I was wondering what your take on that was. Look, I, you can give it as any kind of gift you want. I just want you to buy my book. Uh, yeah, you know, I, when I first sold this book to Knopf, the idea was I was going to write a book full of love stories. And the original plan was that it was going to come out right around Valentine's Day and that people could, could give it to their, their sweeties as a Valentine's Day present, which now that I'm saying it is like, do people buy Valentine's Day presents? I'm not sure. I can't remember the last time I bought a book for someone for Valentine's Day. But maybe maybe if they're book lovers, then why not? But anyway, um, I ended up missing like four deadlines in writing the book. So it came out in the summer. But I think it's for the best because the stories I wrote aren't exactly the kinds of stories you might want to give to someone 
romantically. Like they're love stories, but they're very cynical love stories. I think some are maybe more hopeful than others, um, but they're they're a little spicy. They're not just uh, he loved her and she loved him and 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 she loved her and they all lived happily ever after. They're a little more complicated. I was on. Um, I did a panel uh, last summer uh, for uh, of, of romance writers. Um, which I guess is, is, was, uh, maybe the genre you would put my book in. Um, but it was all, you know, like it was all women, uh, who, who, who write, uh, romance novels and it was great. I was really excited to be there. And I, I, I learned a lot about romance fiction. And one of the questions is what makes a story, uh, a romance and one of the like most confident answers was like, well, it has to have a happy ending. And I thought, oh, I'm on the wrong panel. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I guess I don't belong to this genre because many of these stories uh, don't necessarily have happy endings. Or endings, even. Yeah. Although I would, I, I wish, when I wish I asked when I was on that panel, does a happy ending have to be the couple got together or stayed together? Like sometimes there's the happiness of leaving a relationship or of getting over a relationship or of, you know, thinking back and being grateful for the times you had in a relationship. I don't know if happiness is necessarily the music swells and you lean in for a kiss and there, there we are. And it's, you know, it's all, all roses and daffodils uh, forever. Are we allowed just to say something about the ending of Bojack Horseman? It feels like enough time has passed, right? Hey, I'm not going <laughs> to... You're not the spoiler police here? Not, not my job. How specific are you going to get about the ending of Bojack Horseman? I mean, I was just going to say the ending of Bojack Horseman also feels like a separation that maybe is the happy, bittersweet ending. I think that is a fair a fair assessment. Um, yeah, I, 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 I feel like the ending of Bojack Horseman definitely feels like it's a period at the end of the sentence. Um, and there's some closure in that, although not necessarily contentment. On that note, uh, Up and Comers, one of the stories from your book is about a band of mostly bisexual musicians who develop superpowers and, they have substance abuse abuse issues, and the end of the story is pretty hopeful and also about death. <laughs> I'd say it's more about life. The ending of the story. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say. So, uh, the ending is is saying sort of death is inevitable, no matter what choices you make. So you might as well make brave choices or good choices. Mm-hmm. And this. Um, this reminded me of Bojack as well. Well, hold on. I feel like you're skipping an important part of the ending. If we're going to talk about the end of Up and Comers, is that it starts by saying, yes, death, when it, death happens, it's going to happen and it's terrifying and overwhelming. And you can face death cowardly or you can face death uh, bravely, but either way, you're going to die. But the, 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 the next part is you could say the same thing about life, that life is terrifying and, and overwhelming. And when you're faced with life, you can choose to be cowardly or you can be brave. But either way, you're going to live. So you might as well be brave. So it's, it's a little more, it's not just, we're all going to die, so might as well just do whatever, you know. <laughs> you're right. Um, but I, f- I do feel like that's a theme in your work is you're sort of 
life affirming by death affirming? Well, I think I'm, I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm a very cynical optimist or a very optimistic cynic. I don't know what it is, but I, I, I do feel like I take comfort and hope in some very dark places, or I, I think I, that I am a, a realist and I have low expectations for society and other people and also myself. Um, but I find within those low expectations, I believe we can surprise each other. And so I, I am not somebody who believes that things are hopeless and that nothing can be changed. Um, but I also don't believe that things are great and nothing should be changed. You know, I, I believe that we have, we have a lot of changes we need to make. And the only way to make them is to A, see the world for how it is, all the, the darkness and sadness and difficulty of it, but then also believe that there are things we can do to make the world a little better and to make life for the people in our lives and for ourselves a little better. And I, I think that you can't, if you don't have that belief, it's not going to happen. But I think also if you don't have a realistic sense of what the challenges are and what the the, the situation you're currently in is, that's also not going to happen. So, I, so I've determined my outlook is the best <laughs> for, for me anyway. So on that note, what is it like being on book tour right now in the middle of a pandemic and nationwide protests against violence against Black people? Um, it's... Well, there's there's a lot, a lot there's a lot to unpack there because <laughs> I'd say the me being on a book tour is like the least interesting part of that. Like the book tour is like yeah, I'm I'm having conversations like this virtually in in my uh, at my in my house in Santa Monica, um, and I'm I'm talking to people. It's not quite as much fun as the in person book tour that I did when the the the. Um, original copy of, of my book came out. Now I'm doing this tour around the paperback copy. Um, you know, I miss, I miss meeting people and, and talking to people because so much of writing uh, in any kind, I mean, particularly TV writing, but also book writing is not meeting your audience. It's, it's, you make it and you put it out and, you know, you can get a little bit on social media of, of what people think, but it was really amazing to me last year to go from town to town and meet people who were fans and actually get to talk to them face to face and sign books for them. And I, I do miss that because that was cool. Um, but uh, otherwise, I, I think, yeah, there are people are having a, a much uh, tougher go of it than I am when my biggest complaint is that like, I have to do my book tour virtually uh, versus you know, in, in person. So I'm, I, I'm, I am very grateful for my own situation. I feel, I feel very lucky, um, especially the way this pandemic has landed on a lot of people and, and, and put stresses in a lot of different places. I feel like I am, uh, very blessed that, that I, um, it has not hit me specifically as bad as it has hit others. What is love? Um, what is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. What is love? Um, I, I, what is love? I don't know. What, uh, if you'd like to know, you should read my book. If I could, if I could explain love in a sentence, I wouldn't have needed to write a, a whole book about it. Um, 
I mean, you know, love is uh, the feeling that you have for someone you love. I don't, I mean, what is a table? What is a chair? I mean, these words are, are uh, hard to define. Maybe a table and a chair are easier to define than love. Um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think you, you know it when you see it or you know it when you feel it. I mean, I, I've always been fascinated by people who don't know if they're in love or not because that, that's, that's never been a problem for me. I feel like I've always been able to tell pretty cleanly, like, I love this person. I do not love this person. I like this person. Um, and, but, I, I, but there's no checkboxes. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I don't know when, when, what that means to, to love somebody else or, or feel love for somebody else. What do you think? I mean, I was reading all all about love by Bell Hooks in preparation for this. Oh, okay. What does Bell Hooks say? Um, she says a smarter writer than I. <laughs> she says that love is a ver- should be thought of as a verb mostly, and that I think that's great. Extending one's she's quoting someone else, but then she expands on this idea. It's extending oneself. Uh, for the spiritual nourishment of yourself or someone else. I think that's fantastic. I think I love that. Love is a verb. I think that's what it is. And it's, it's, um, it's a sentence. You know what I mean? Like when I say love, that's a, a full sentence because it's a command. I'm, 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 uh, I'm telling you to love. <laughs> it's, a, it's an active thing you do. I think that's, yeah, that sounds good to me. Let's say I said that. I agree. Let's put the quotation marks around the whole thing with bell hooks and then Raphael Bob Waxberg at the end of it. I'm interested in what got you interested in the missed connections genre. You have a story in here that was originally published on Craigslist as a missed connections ad. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think miss, the missed connections post on Craigslist is a delightful genre of uh, literature. Um, and I, uh, I, I remember, you know, when I was, I guess I don't do it anymore, but I used to go and just look at the misconnections and see what people wrote and, and the ways in which people would describe, um, seeing someone from across the bar and feeling like there was a moment and that that other person also must have recognized that moment because it felt so true. And me as the reader going, I don't know, but maybe, I don't know. You know, I don't know if that other person experienced that as well. That's that's really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I was living in New York at the time. And I, I'm, as a writer, I'm really fascinated in uh, forms and structures. And like, what, how can I tell a story using this structure as a narrative device? Um, and so the idea of posting something anonymously because that's how you post things on mis- on Craigslist posting an anonymous misconnection and telling a story that way and just putting it out into the world uh was really fun for me and that, that's something that I enjoy doing from time to time just creating a little like a, a a Twitter account or a post or just something and just like putting it out into the world and seeing if 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 it catches anything and usually it doesn't I mean usually like I don't know if anyone found it or not or like oh this you know, maybe someone got some enjoyment out of this. You know, it's like putting something in a message in a bottle and throwing it into the ocean 
and you'll never know if anyone saw that or not. I think there's something kind of beautiful and fun about that. Um, but this misconnection piece I post, uh, posted got a little bit of traction. People really liked it and, and, and were blogging about it. And it became this thing of this, this mystery of like who wrote this thing. Uh, and then it was just me. Uh, <laughs> so it was a little disappointing, but I, 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 it was really fun. I, I mean, I really, I really enjoyed the challenge of like, yeah, what, what could I write for this thing that would fit the format of this thing, but gradually reveal itself to be a work of fiction. But also I feel like it's very thematically in keeping with so many misconnections ads specific. I feel like they're all by men. The ones that are like, I saw you from 20 feet away and we made eye contact and I think I'm in yeah. love with you. Well, better that than going up and bothering those women, right? Like that's actually, yeah, if you feel that way, good, hold on to it, post a misconnection. Cause then if she felt it too, she'll find you. You don't, you don't need to like act on that in the moment and make her take her headphones out and like chatter up. That like we should be encouraging that behavior. That's good, I think. Encouraging misconnections, maybe you're right. All of the misconnect, not all misconnections now, but many are about people's beautiful eyes because everyone is wearing a mask. Oh really? I gotta I gotta get back on the boards. That's really interesting. That's yeah, really interesting. yeah, I'm a connoisseur. Um, let's see. Uh, I wanted to ask about the cashew story. Um, in the beginning of the book, the first story is about circus cashews um, that a man offers a woman this uh, can of cashews that may or may not have a snake coiled inside about to pop out. Yeah. Um, and when the book first came out, uh, someone described that, uh, one reviewer described the story as hopeful. And I was wondering if you think that story is hopeful. I love that. I, um, you know, actually, I get that question a lot, not about that story, but about my work in general. Like, is BoJack a hopeful show or is it a hopeless show? Um, and I, I, I think, again, I think there's like a hopeful cynicism to that story or there's hopefulness in the midst of cynicism, right? So the, basically the, 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 the way the story works, and it's, I think, a really nice introduction to the, the themes of the rest of the book, is the, the cashew can is a metaphor for starting any relationship and that this guy is offering you this can of cashews that very suspiciously looks like a prank can that a snake is going to jump out. But the the can itself is promising you that you're not going to get hurt this time. That even though every other experience you've ever had opening a can in this shape has led to a, a fake snake jumping out and startling you this time will be different. And so I, I think there is something so so you can read it very cynically and 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 read that story as like yeah all love is stupid it's you're always going to get hurt by it you'd be better off alone but i think there's i don't know if that's the implication of the story i think it it leaves you on that question of do you open the can or not and i mean i think yeah of course you do i mean i i, I feel like what, so what's the story? She goes, oh, okay, and she puts the can down and she leaves the room. I think she's going to open it, you know, and 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 but it's open to interpretation. And I think the the rest of the book is stories of people who maybe against their better judgment 
have opened that can. Um, and I, I think there is something somewhat hopeful in that, at least in the characters. I mean, there, there's a hopefulness in like, yeah, once more into the breach. Like, let's, I, I believe that this can lead to something else, even if all my experiences thus far have, have gone against that. You know, I, I think there's a lot, I think there is hope in that. You've talked uh, a lot about becoming less cynical after. Yeah. Well, I, it's funny. I think, I, I think the, after meeting my wife, yeah, I think the, the, you can track these stories, the evolution of this book in, in my own evolution. And, and yes, that story was written when I was single and very cynical. <laughs> so, um, but again, now looking at the trajectory my life has gone, now I look back at it with more hope because I think, oh, look at the, the guy who wrote that story didn't even know how much hope there was yet to come. Didn't even know what love could be for him or what it could do for him. So even if the story itself is cynical, it's placement for me, at least in my own autobiography. And of course, nobody reading it is going to have the same reading. But for me, I see tremendous hope in it because I see the potential of this person who was this cynical and this beaten down, who yet still allowed himself to open up to the possibility of love and was profoundly rewarded for it. Like you kept opening those cans of cashews. Yeah, eventually I found a good one. Great. Um, let's see. Uh, I also wanted to go on a little fact-finding mission, so off of this. Uh -oh. um, so in the acknowledgments, which you, you just alluded to, I think, um, you wrote, Finally, I would like to thank my wife. About half of these stories are from before I met her and half since. And I'm convinced if you line them up in the order they were written, you could pinpoint the moment when my heart became whole. And that's super sweet, obviously. Um, and then I thought uh, I was reminded of, I actually didn't remember where I read it, but I remembered reading a feature about Bojack in which like the end of the story was you emailing the reporter months after the interview. Um, so he, you, he at like during the interview or one of the interviews, I don't know, the person asked you, something and you you specified that you had a girlfriend like you just wanted to make clear that you had a girlfriend and the reporter asked you how it was going i i feel like i want to interrupt right away because that 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 story uh was, was with the new york times and was, uh stephen roderick i really i really enjoyed the piece i really enjoyed uh meeting him and, and talking to him for the piece but his his um his claim that i felt the need to interject that i have a girlfriend by the way I, I feel like that doesn't sound like me. I feel like it must have come up somehow or he asked or we were talking about it. I don't think I felt the need to say, oh, by the way, I have a, make sure you tell people I have a girlfriend. Okay. I mean, the way I interpreted it that as is, a reader. No I, no, I think that that's the way it feels in the piece. You're not wrong. I think he, he implies that. No, I was going to say the way I read it is like you were talking about how, what, how cynical you were. Et cetera, et cetera. And it sounded like you were like this huge, maybe misanthropic person. Then you were like, just so you know, I do have oh, a girlfriend. Yeah. Like there is love in my life. Okay. Well, in that case, I guess, I guess he did a good job. I'm sorry for impugning your reputation, Mr. Roderick. Um, but yeah. So, so you said you had a girlfriend and you said, uh, it's going well. And then a pause. And then I think. 
And then a few months later, you emailed to say, can I update that things with my girlfriend are going marvelously? Yeah, well, I got what happened was there was um, the fact checker called me. And, you know, um, not every publication does this, but, uh, you know, a few of the, the fancier publications have fact checkers, which I think is great. I think that's it's a great job for someone to have. And I think it makes the stories better. But so sometimes I'll do an interview and then I'll get this follow up like a month later from this fact checker. And they, you know, they go down uh, in the, in the order of the story. So you can kind of picture in your head how this article is going to be laid out and you can kind of get a sense. And so I, I got a sense from the, the questions that the kicker of the whole piece was going to be, it's going okay. I think, um, which I, on some level, I appreciate that as like a hopeful cynic, because I think that's that to me represents like a little bit of hope on the horizon. But then I also thought now where it's a few months later, I don't want my girlfriend to see this article and say, see me say it's going okay, I think, when that's not accurate anymore. It's it's going marvelously now. I, I wanted to update. And so I, I very frantically sent an email like it's not it's not too late to update the piece, is it? Uh, and he said, I'll see what I can do. So I was glad that that got in. And now I would even uh, another update. It's going better than marvelously because we're married. So I was wondering if the time between that interview and the time that you sent that follow-up email, is that the moment? That's the moment. Um, yeah, I'd say it probably is. I, you, you found it. You found the moment. <laughs> good good fact-finding. Documented in the New York Times. How about that? New York Times, that's beautiful. Um, and there's also a, a memorable story in your book that is sort of a riff on this unintentionally poetic handwritten sign that's from the on a store, the front door of a store. Uh, and it says, we will be close on Friday, 18 July. And I was wondering about the origin story of that story. When did you see that sign? That was a sign I, I was walking home from what? What was I walking home from? I was in L.A., I think I'd gone to like a, a picnic with a bunch of friends or no, I think it was, this is not at all relevant, but I, I think I remember the night and it was, um, it was a, a, an, an, an ex-girlfriend of mine and I were like hanging out like as friends, just, which I guess, I don't know. I don't know, you know, cause we're, we can be friends. It's fine. Um, and so she had a bunch of friends and she's like, why don't you come hang out with us? So it was, it was mostly people I didn't know. Um, but I could walk there from my apartment. And that was like, <laughs> that was the squeaker for me. I was like, all right, that sounds, that'll be a nice, a nice walk. I like to walk when I can. Um, and and uh, so I, I walked there and then I walked home and uh, I saw this sign that said, we will be close on Friday, 18 July. And, you know, maybe it was because I had just been at this picnic with my ex-girlfriend that that felt like it had some uh, emotional resonance for me. Um, so I took a picture of it and I went home and I immediately uh, wrote this piece inspired by the the, the sign, we, we will be close on Friday, 18 July. Um, sorry for any inconvenience. Sorry for any inconvenience. Yes, that was the other the other part of the sign. Um, so where was it? Was in? It was in a storefront. It was just some something. It was in L.A. It was a maybe I don't know. It was a restaurant or a store or it was something. Um, and I, 
you know, it's, I want to be careful when I talk about that story and my intentions behind that story, because I, I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm making fun of the sign for having poor English. You know, it's, it's not about like, ha ha, look at, look at these idiots who don't know how to, how to write good. I am a fancy writer. I know it should be closed. I speak one language, English, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not here to judge anyone, but I, I found beauty in the accidental poetics of it. This idea of we will be close for one day um, really, really, really tickled me. Um, so, yeah, so I, I wrote this story, which I think is, is, is some, is, is very uh, romantic and is, is not about ha ha, look at this misspelled sign. I, 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 I read it as like the wonders of the night, you know, like what, how, how, how wonderful that I should find this sign that suddenly has some meaning for me. Yes. This accidental poetry. Yeah. Um, do you mark 18th July in any way now? Is it like in your mind? Um, I feel like I might be wrong about this, but I feel like there was, no, I'm definitely wrong about that. I was going to say, I think there was a Bojack season that came out on 18 July, but I, I think that can't be right because it, it wouldn't have been, it wouldn't have been a Friday um, any year since that actual Friday. Um, so I don't know, but I, I feel like I notice it when it happens. I guess it's coming up. I guess it's, uh, it's coming up in a, in a, in, in a few weeks. I should, um, I should do something for it. You're right. I hadn't, I hadn't thought about that. Um, I wanted to ask if there are any other books that you want to recommend that you're reading right now. Oh, sure. Um, well, there's one, one book that I love that I, I actually discovered because I was at the end of the year, I was looking um, at like the lists of like the, the best books of the year. Uh, and my book was not on it. Uh, but there's this other short story book uh, by Ted Chang called Exhalation. Um, and I was like, what, what's that book? That book thinks it's so great. It could be on this list. So I bought it and I read it. And I was like, oh, yeah, this book's really good. This is a really, this is a really good book of short stories. Um, so I, I, I loved that. Uh, really beautifully crafted short stories that were kind of double as interesting, fun logic puzzles while also being very um, emotional um and 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 beautiful characters. The book I'm reading right now that I'm really enjoying is called Friday Black. It's another book of short stories and a similar thing. I discovered it because someone else was comparing it to my book. So I'm saying like if you like this book, you should also read that. And it's like, well, I liked my book, maybe I should also read that. And I it's great. I I would recommend that as well. Um are they like your book? Um I, yeah, I see. I see the connection there. I, there's a a kind of a, a magic, magical realism and kind of a a, a cynical sentimentality that I, I think pervades uh, Friday Black. That I, I would say is, is similar in some ways. They're obviously very different in other ways. But if if you liked my book, I would I would recommend buying both of those books of short stories. You're listening to a podcast of Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. I'm also wondering if you are just generally feeling hopeful right now about the state of the world or. Oh, God. Um, yes, I am. I mean, I think it's not going to surprise you based on the 
rest of our conversation. I'm very cynical, um, but I, I, I do have hope. You know, I think that there are conversations that are happening now that are um, maybe a little depressing that it has taken this long to have these conversations. I mean, specifically talking about police and talking about racism, uh, specifically anti-black racism, both in society, but also it, it's kind of snaked out to all levels of culture. I think there are conversations uh, being had about hiring practices and about pop culture that is not really at all related to police violence, except that it's about the society that we're all swimming in and and, and the the dangers of allowing status quo to, to continue just for the sake of status quo. So I think those conversations are good. And I think, you know, a lot of times you have conversations. They don't necessarily lead anywhere. I don't think they're going to lead to all the places that I would like them to go, but I think they will lead to some places. You know, I, I, I felt similarly um, a couple of years ago about when it felt like this, this Me Too movement was happening. Um, I mean, in some ways it feels like that's still happening, uh, but without necessarily the same kind of energy or emergency behind it. But I felt then too, like, yeah, once we're done all talking about this, a lot of things are going to snap back into place, but a lot of things won't. Um, and so I am somewhat optimistic that, that based on a lot of the conversations that were happening now, there are a lot of things that won't just snap back into place. Um, and even if a lot of things do snap back into place, I think there are small changes that are going to make a lot of difference. And I think that there are certain ways in which people think that has been shifted for good and that those people aren't, you know, all of a sudden going to become um, radicals or activists as, as much as I would like them to, or myself to. Uh, I, I, I do think it is a, it is a good thing, although it is also a very hard thing. Um, and I, I wish that it didn't have to be that that great change didn't have to be coupled with tremendous trauma um, and suffering and anger. But I, I sometimes I worry that that's the only way that change can happen. Um, I was actually thinking that now is a great time to be talking about a book about love in some ways, because I feel like everyone is staying home sort of as a way of expressing care for our communities and for other people. Um, because of the coronavirus, what, what, also what you're saying is see what 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 you're saying is what the world needs now is love, sweet love, sweet love, love. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and also, all the protests I think are coming from a similar place. Um, but going off of what you said, I was wondering if has your thinking shifted in any way, and like, will you take it into your work? Oh yes, yeah. I mean, I I don't know if. I can point to these last two weeks or three weeks, four weeks, however, what you want to define this moment and specifically say, you know, here are the boxes I am checking here, are the changes that have happened. Um, but I think it is built on the movement that I've done before and the, and the, and the thinking that I've done before. And I think it's caused me to be more aware, um, certainly in regards to, uh, specifically black people, but all people of color. And I think I, in the past, have been have been guilty of perhaps um, painting with too broad a brush when it comes to marginalized people and thinking about women and queer people 
and uh, non-binary people and people of color um, as you know a, a collective other that I need to be conscious of and create opportunities for and uh, make space for. And I still do believe that, but I, I also believe it is important to specifically think about each of these separate groups as separate groups uh, and even the people within that as individuals and think, what am I doing for those people or those people or those people? I can't just kind of check a box and think like, this is, this is what I've done for people of color generally. So that has been a, a, a big shift that I think has been built on experiences that I've uh, had in the past, but I think has really come to a head um, in the last month for me. And then, and then also to think about, you know, what, what as, as someone who has power, um, relatively, what am I doing? What am I actively doing with that power? Because I, I think talk is cheap, and I think platitudes are cheap, and even me saying that feels cheap. And and, I, and so that's why I, I I'm uncomfortable talking about it sometimes because I feel like the work is not in the conversation; the work is in the work. Um, and so that that is something that I want to continue doing um, is thinking about what are the moments where I have power. And how can I test that power or push that power and not just help people or think about people other than myself when it is comfortable for me or easy for me, but how, how can I test the limits of what my influence can do or be? Is there an example of that? Is there an example of that? Well, I think in hiring people, you know, and that, that is something, you know, I think especially when I, when I look at, uh, you know, I was been talking recently about uh, the casting of Diane on BoJack Horseman, who is a, a Vietnamese American character who's played by a, a white actress, and that is something that I wouldn't do now. Um, but the truth is, I, I I didn't really feel comfortable with it then, and I did it because I didn't trust my own authority in making my own show, which feels a little silly to say. But I was a first time showrunner. And I, I, I didn't put my foot down hard enough. I didn't make this the priority that it needed to be. I let myself become convinced that it would be okay if we had colorblind casting for this animated show because there was precedent for that. Because other people had done it before, had done similar things. Because this was not as bad as things other people have done. Because we, I wasn't acting, asking a white actress to put on an accent. Um, you know, there were arguments that I um, rationalized for myself and other people rationalized for me that allowed me to make that decision. Uh, but the main thing was it was the easier decision. And, I, you know, I, I, it's not, I can't just say, oh, I, I didn't know it was wrong then and I learned. I think I didn't know how wrong it was or the ways in which it was harmful, uh, which I think I, I've, I've since become more aware of. But the truth is I, I wasn't I was never 100% comfortable with it, but I, I allowed myself to be comfortable with it because I thought that would make things easier for everyone. And by everyone, I mean me and uh, some of the other people who were making the show. Um, I also feel like because of that mistake and because I did that, I, I think it is important for me to speak honestly about that and talk about my struggles with that decision that I've had since then and how it has affected the show, which I've, I've, I've done on, on numerous interviews because I don't want other showrunners to look at my show as an example, the same way that I looked at other shows. You know, I, I don't, and I, I, I'm sure they did. I, you know, I'm sure 
um, on some level, it affected things that, you know, when um, shows like Big Mouth or Central Park, uh, to name a few that are also in the news right at this moment, uh, when they were looking at casting characters of color and they thought, is it okay if we cast a white person? I'm sure one of their data points was BoJack Horseman. And they said, well, they did it and it was fine. And so I'm, I'm very uncomfortable beating, being that data point for somebody else. Uh, and so I, uh, for that reason, I think it, it, not only that reason, I think it is important for me to speak on that. Um, we are going to ask some audience questions now. And I did want to remind our audience that you can submit questions. Um, from Jack, he wants to know, uh, why did you decide to voice Charlie Witherspoon? Um, so, so Charlie Witherspoon is a character on, on BoJack. And I feel like when I describe him, I kind of... Uh, he talks like this and um someone told me once like you, you don't need to do the charlie voice like it, it's your voice it's not that different from your actual people know you're charlie witherspoon when they just hear you talking regularly um but charlie witherspoon uh is a character on the show he, he first arrived in the first season and we were thinking about it, and and whenever you'd come up in the writer's room i would just kind of like do it. and then like charlie comes in he goes oh okay dad oh my first day i'm really scared you know like that's his like thing and then i think i maybe did it at the table read before you know before we had cast the part and then i think the other writers or maybe the producers suggested you should just do it like that that's the voice it's very funny you're gonna bring in another actor and tell him to do it like that no you you should just do it and I, I I have a deep affection for Charlie, who is a very problematic character. Like, I, I wouldn't want to suggest that Charlie is any sort of hero because he is definitely not. But I, I definitely uh, relate to his feeling like he's constantly in over his head. I think that is something that I, I especially the higher he climbs in his, in, in, in uh, his career and his life, the more he feels really out of place. Um, that is something that I deeply relate to, that imposter syndrome. Um, and, oh, going back to a Diane-themed question, uh, Lynn sure. wanted to ask, how do you feel about Jenny Slate choosing not to voice her Big Mouth character um, and asking for a Black voice actor to take the role? I think that's fantastic. I think that's I think that's great. I... Um, I, I wish that uh, the show had made that consideration at the beginning, and I wish my show had made that consideration at the beginning and been more thoughtful about that. Um, I think it, it takes – I think it's it's hard to um, – what's the expression? Switch boats midstream? Is that the – change horses midstream it's it's hard it's difficult to make an adjustment like that so i really applaud them for for doing that and i also applaud the people who criticized them who i think made it them feel like it was impossible to keep going i mean i i think that that is like i don't want to give too many kudos to them or myself for admitting a mistake you know i i i think what when change like this happens, when people become more thoughtful, it is because other people are loudly telling them, this is a mistake, this is wrong, here is why. And I think sometimes that job can feel like a thankless job when it feels like people aren't listening to you. Um, so I'm really glad to have these examples to point to and say, people are listening, like keep keep up that criticism. Even me, when I talk about 
mistakes I've made with Diane specifically or other mistakes. It's sometimes that's scary because every time I do, it invites more criticism. More people say, well, even in the course of that apology, you messed this up. You said that you said this wrong. And that happens every single time. And every single time it feels bad. It feels bad to be criticized, but it's good. And I'm glad that I do because any changes that I have made in my own thinking, any evolving I have done has come from people criticizing me. And whether that's people who I love and trust and respect, or it's strangers who are really mad and make me go, wow, that person's real mad. What is, what is going on there? Um, I think that is helpful. And I think sometimes it feels like it isn't, but it definitely is. Um, Anson wants to know, how do you remain hopeful slash optimistic in the world that we live in? The issues you highlight about the bad in the world, especially through Diane's character in Bojack, feel relatable and also unsolvable. I think... I think it's easier to be hopeful when you adjust your expectations. I'll say that. And I I think you can think about like one thing that makes me feel very hopeful is when I look back at my own life and I see the ways that I have changed and evolved, whether that's politically or just in interpersonal relationships, how I've learned to talk to people, how I can look at moments from my past and go, Oh, I wouldn't do that now. I'm, I'm, I'm better than I was then. And there are ways in which I haven't changed. And there are ways in which I get frustrated with myself for making the same mistakes now that I, that I would have made a year ago or 10 years ago. Um, and, and, but I do see change in me. And that gives me hope because I, I, if I can change, then I believe other people can change. And so I don't necessarily know if large systems or institutions can or will change in our lifetime. But I... I I think we can chip away at stuff. You know, I, I think like even just looking at these last this last month, I think a lot of things have been happening locally, right? That maybe, you know, we can't expect to happen on a national or, or even statewide level. But as far as like, you know, cities uh, defunding their own police uh, units and, and reforming them and thinking critically about them um, – you know, I, I feel like there's some sort of tipping point happening there. And and again, I don't know where that's going to go, but that gives me tremendous hope that, that people that in small places and small ways can change and that moves can happen. And I think that's, that's the only way to make changes to have hope. I think if, if you don't, um, if you can't envision a better world, then it's not going to happen because there's so many forces who don't want the better world. There's, you know, I think the status quo is very much entrenched and it's, it's, it's not going to happen unless people believe that it can and, and work to make it happen. Um, how do you approach character development in the short story form? How much do you know about them outside of the moment or moments we experience with them? Um, none. I don't know anything. I mean, anything that exists is what's in the story. I mean, I would say there's, you know, I, there's stuff I've written for some of these stories that ended up getting cut out of the stories that maybe informed the way that I wrote them, but they're not true because they're not in the story. Like the only, the only thing that exists is what's in the story itself. So anything you want to imply in your stories you need to make sure it's being implied by your story. You know, you you can think and create a world of background that might be helpful for you in crafting your story. Um, but it's not, I mean, then other people can read and they'll come to their own conclusions and they're not any more 
right or wrong than you are. Um, but I, so, I mean, the, when I think about what makes a story a story, and this is true in television and in short stories and novels and movies and, and any art form that I want to be writing, uh, and, and this is just my philosophy and not everyone would agree with this, but my philosophy is what makes a story a story is change. And that something has to happen in the story where it feels like if you took a picture at the beginning and you took a picture at the end, the pictures wouldn't be exactly the same. And if, if the pictures are the same, then you haven't told the story. I don't mean physical pictures. I mean, you know, a, a diagram of the emotional state of the characters. And I think where that change really needs to occur is in a character or in a relationship, right? That, that the characters start the story in one way and they end it in another way. And some way, sometimes that is just your understanding of the character. The character itself has not changed, but has revealed something to you, the reader or the audience that you did not know at the beginning. But I think when you're thinking about character development over the course of a story, you, you want to think of that development, like it's developing. It's, it's like love. It's a verb. Uh, what, what is, what is changing for your character during the story and how are the, how is the story you're telling um, articulating that change and expressing that change and allowing that change to happen? Uh, Crystal would like to ask, is writing TV a lot different from writing a book? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I would say the, the art of it is not that different, but the craft of it is very different, right? So when I, when I, I think about story in the same way, I think about character in the same way, um, the, the way in which I write is very similar. I usually start with dialogue and kind of build out from there. I, I start with a, a voice. You know, a lot of these stories are, are told in first person or even second person or third, third person, but have very specific, distinct voice. And that's kind of my way into the story. And then I figure out, okay, what actually, what is this voice telling us? What is the story that's actually happening? Um, but Obviously, in a book, I'm writing it by myself. And in, with, in TV, I'm writing it with a whole room full of writers and we're talking about this stuff and we're bouncing ideas off each other and we're collaborating. And then I'm also collaborating with the actors and the artists and the directors. And, and um, it goes through so much cumulatively. It becomes such a, a group project um, in a way that a, a book isn't quite, although a lot of people helped me, help me with this book. So that, that in some ways was also a group project. Uh, Ellen asks, do you have a favorite season of Bojack Horseman? Um, no, I, you know, it's funny because I, I feel like when I get asked questions like that, like what's your favorite season, what's your favorite story in this book? I feel like, you know, they're, they're my children and I couldn't possibly pick a favorite, but they're not children. They don't care. They don't have feelings. Like what? I could just pick, pick any season. Um, and the other seasons wouldn't be offended. I guess, I guess maybe I'm afraid that if I say one season is my favorite, then fans of the show who have different favorites will feel like they're wrong or will, you know, or will feel like I don't get, or I'm wrong or that I don't understand my own show. Um, I really don't have a favorite. I mean, I, I, there, there are certain things that I like better about some seasons versus other seasons, but I, I, I had certain, certain seasons were maybe smoother or easier to write or work on than others. But when you look at the end result, no, I, I couldn't tell you, you know, what, what, what a favorite of mine is. Lots of parents do have favorite children. So, <laughs> well, maybe. 
Ellen is my mother's name, by the way. So may- maybe that was my mom uh, very sneakily trying to tell me that I am her favorite child. Um, I do remember there was one season. I don't remember which one it was, but I just, like cried a little bit because I was so relieved that it was only sort of hopeless at the end. Um, that was probably season four. We <laughs> think like the seasons that were only sort of hopeless. I feel like season four ended the most optimistically of all the seasons. Although I'd say season season two ends somewhat optimistically. Is again, what does it mean to be optimistic? Right? Like I think, um, I think season three is maybe the darkest ending, um, or the, or the most hopeless. But even that has a little bit of hope, depending on how you interpret it. And I'd say every other season is slightly hopeful, but also very much not. And it's up to you. It's, you know, it's how, how much hope do you think these characters have? That's open to interpretation. Uh, what sort of advice do you have to people just starting out in their careers? Yeah, the first piece of advice is get your name out there. Get people saying your name. Um, starting out in your career, I would say the best thing you can do is write a lot. Um, I think there are a lot of people who I have known who, who've, who've uh, specifically in the TV industry, who've, who've moved to LA and tried to enter this business and gotten really good at getting jobs and schmoozing um, and spent a lot of time making connections and did not spend as much time honing their craft and writing scripts and developing material. So then they were in a position where pe- they had a lot of people who were excited to read their scripts and give them opportunities, but they didn't have uh, the scripts. They they just, they weren't there yet. They didn't, you know, they, they weren't confident in their own writing to share with people or their writing just wasn't quite good enough. So I think the the main thing you should be doing when you're starting is writing a lot, you know, uh, ask your friends, your peers for feedback, um, take their feedback. Don't just ignore it. If, if something is not being communicated to them, that's a sign. Even if they don't get it, what are you doing to make sure that they get it? Um, I think for me, uh, when I was first starting out, I would take my laptop every day to a coffee shop where I didn't know the Wi-Fi password. That was very important for me because if I knew the Wi-Fi password, I would be on the internet for like seven hours and I would waste the day. I, 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 some people can be more disciplined than I, I can. But if that's you and you know yourself, find a way to disable your own internet so you don't get distracted. Um, I had a routine where I would turn the internet off on my computer before I went to bed. And then in the morning, I would not turn the internet back on until I had worked for four hours. So I didn't have to get to work right away. I could eat breakfast. I could maybe watch a TV show, but I couldn't go online until I I'd put four hours in of writing. Um, so that's my advice is, is write a lot and work on multiple things at once too. Like if, if you hit, if you hit a wall, if you're having writer's block, pull up another document and start writing something else, you know, um, get back to that thing later. That was one of the fun things about writing my short stories. I felt like I could, if I hit a wall with one, I could still be productive by working on another one. So we're about to finish up, but uh, I think we close with the question, what is your 60 second idea to change the world? Um, my 60 second idea to change the world. I think everybody in the world should take a workshop uh, where they learn, and this is related to what I was saying earlier, where they learn that criticism doesn't you don't need to defend yourself you can just take the criticism like it's not an attack uh you know that that it you're not it doesn't show weakness to admit 
that you did something wrong, that you can apologize and you can, and you also don't have to know how to be better right away, but you can, you can allow yourself to admit that you don't, that you messed up and you don't have a solution. Um, I think if everybody could learn how to do that, we would be in a much better, more constructive world. I also think we should defund the police. Yeah. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so fun. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for watching and listening. <laughs>